0: a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Introducing Bluehost Cloud So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hey, I heard you needed an incredible musical, and I want to urge you, if you are in New York City, from today until the end of December 2021, run to the Atlantic Theater Company's production of Kimberly Akimbo. It stars Victoria Clark and Bonnie Milligan and a host of other incredible talents, actors, and musicians. It is directed by Jessica Stone. It is written by the great David Lindsay Aber and Janine Tesori. It would be impossible for me to explain to you what makes this so special without giving away some key plot points, and I don't want to ruin this magical musical for you. But just trust me when I tell you that Victoria Clark's performance, and she's the centerpiece of this unbelievably creative, inspiring, and magical night of theater. She plays a 16-year-old girl. That's all you need to know. Her journey, what she is trying to negotiate with a rare disease that makes her look much older than she is. Her family dynamics, her school dynamics, it's about love, it's about faith, It's about understanding. It's about redemption. It's about living your best life and a full life and living every day like it might be your last. It is incredible. And to be back in a theater seeing this kind of work and the Atlantic Theater Company is just so brilliant at finding these gems and sharing them with us. So, run to the Atlantic Theater Company to get tickets. You can go to AtlanticTheater.org. Enjoy it. I loved it. Little known fact about my guest today she's a singer, actress, director, entrepreneur. She is currently starring in Girl from the North Country on Broadway, a musical based on Bob Dylan songs. She is so extraordinary. I'm so happy, happy, happy to have Kimber Sprawl on the podcast today. Welcome, Kimber. A-OK everyone. My guest today is Kimber Elaine Sprawl. Kimber originated the role of Marianne Lane in Girl from the North Country at the Public Theater and on Broadway. Some of her other Broadway credits include A Bronx Tale and Beautiful, the Carol King musical. She performed in the national tour of The Lion King and regionally she appeared in the Niceties at the Milwaukee Rep and Memphis at the Walnut Street Theater. She is a graduate of CCM and I had the great fortune of seeing her in her Broadway show just the other night. Welcome, Kimber, to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: It is. Um, I. It's so exciting when you get to see something in its sort of early stages. And then again, I saw it at the public theater. Um, and then I saw it uh, on Broadway just the other night. And it is remarkable to see a piece of art pre and post pandemic. Um, and and it just resonates in such a different way. Um, I loved it the first time, but it just hit me so hard this time. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your journey with this show inspired by Bob Dylan music? For anyone who doesn't know, um, and your like, how did it come into your life?
1: Um, so it came into my life at a really special and particular time. I had left the Lion King after, um, I'm going all the way back, just because you asked. Um, the way I was, back. I was just at a point in my life where I wanted to tell compelling stories. I wanted those stories to reflect my life. I wanted to be kind of like a vessel and an advocate for unique pieces and characters um on broadway and and in the community and so uh and i wanted to play a principal on broadway i had never done that yet and so i booked the i left lion king and uh got a bronx tale and a week after being there we got our broadway notice that the show was shutting down and it's kind of one of those things where you you kind of align your beliefs and your desires. So you make space for the things that you actually want. You get it. And then it's like a universal test. And I swear it was like divine the way this show came into my life because I didn't know anything about the production. Um, they had already cast the production and um, a woman had to drop out for another gig. And so they were just casting, recasting my role. And I was inundated with so many other auditions and because I didn't know anything about it, I was like, uh, I'm not going to do this one. Like I have to do like, you know, Hamilton or whatever. I don't remember what I had at the time. And my agent was like, no, just read the script. You just read the script. So I went to the pier where I like often will read auditions and I just... I had never read anything like it, you know? I just completely fell in love with the characters. I didn't really know a lot of Bob Dylan music in depth, but I was able to read the lyrics to his music in the script and I just completely fell in love. It, it was just so unique. And there were. it's funny because you say that the second time around when you saw it, 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 it hit harder, which like, for sure. I totally get that. But since m- the show has been introduced to me, it had his has always aligned with where I am in life. It's crazy. Um, yeah. And I've just, I've been in love with the piece ever since. It gets better and better. I think also because you saw for the second time, it we have more clarity um, with these characters and we just get more comfortable and more in sync with each other. Um, and we just keep growing stronger and stronger. And we have so much support from Bob Dylan and Connor McPherson. It just created something, in my opinion, that is just
0: otherworldly. So let's go back and then we'll and then we'll circle back to this show and this moment and your journey. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me where you grew up. When did you discover? that you have a magical voice um, who encouraged you. Just tell me a little bit about your early days as a creative human.
1: Cool. Yeah. I was always a performer. I was always on stage. Uh, I grew up with four sisters. I was the youngest by six years. So I was always kind of wanting the attention singing and, you know, being told to be quiet, but um, we, a fun thing that we used to do on Saturday is we used to African dance and I we joined an African dance company. And, and so that was, I was seven when I was first exposed to being on stage. Um, I don't know if you've ever like, gone through Cincinnati and seen a tour but we performed at the off which was like a massive theater and um so early on i just really had um a, a thing for for being on stage and performing my mom actually inspired me she's a beautiful significant woman she she was an actress when she was my age she was a model she's just kind of like an infectious person super confident and i think she was like the one of the first people that inspired me because she also African danced and and acted in the in the shows there. And um, so that early on, I always knew I wanted to be a pop star to be completely honest. I, I would beg my mom, like, can we just move to LA so I can be on, Dis- on the Disney channel? I really wanted to be a pop star. Um, but I, I think that I fell in love with musical theater around the seventh grade. I went to performing arts school and um, there was just something about at that time I was listening to Rent and Spring Awakening. And, you know, those shows, they just have so much heart and they just, the characters are so flawed, but yet compelling. And it just like, I just fell in love with it um, and decided around that time that I would pursue musical theater. And that's what I did. And then you went, so you went to CCM. Yes, I did. I um, auditioned for CCM and I went there. That was the only college I auditioned for because I was, I'm from Cincinnati mm-hmm. and it was in my backyard. You know, my, my childhood home is 20 minutes away from the school. And I just also felt like that was ordained. day. And I was like, nope, I'm going to go here. I'm going to get this like good tuition, cheap, cheap tuition. And it's like one of the, it, still is one of the top schools in the country. So I just kind of put all my eggs in that basket, went to CCM, had an extraordinary experience there, um, cultivating, uh, you know, singing, dancing, acting, storytelling, etc. cetera. And then I moved to New York as soon as I graduated and hit the ground
0: rolling. So what happens when you come to New York?
1: I got an agent, we showcased, uh, we basically work on a showcase all throughout senior year and then we take it to present it um, to New York to whoever wants to come. And then from there, an agent signed me and I just started auditioning. The first gig I did where I got my equity card was at the Muni uh, at the Adams family And then I went on to do other regional things, uh, hair at Sacramento. But uh, my first role was, as you already mentioned, um, Felicia, and then uh, in in, uh, Memphis. And then soon after that, I got beautiful. And I just, you know, nested there so that I, it's weird when you, well, one, I I craved, well, being on Broadway, you know, just like being able to do my job and then, and explore, other facets of my life and not have to worry about auditioning and everything. So I just, I um, was in the show for a while, but then it's a fascinating thing when you like work towards your dream. And I, I have this dream since I was in the seventh grade and, and it, it gets to a point where it doesn't become, a, it's not a dream anymore. It's just like, Oh, it's only a matter of time until I get this thing that I've been manifesting and working for. But when you finally get it, it, you're relieved, but then you're scared again because you're like, oh crap. Like now I have to reimagine um, the dream for myself. And, um, that's how I think but that's did how
0: it that look like. Re-imagine. Yeah. So, so what does that mean to reimagine the dream? Like one of them out of a million people, right. Get to mm-hmm. be on Broadway, like have the childhood dream, work hard and find yourself there. Um, was it, the kinds of roles you wanted to do in that space? Was it relationships sort of? Can you talk a little bit more about how you went about doing that?
1: Yeah, it's a, it took a while for me to figure out. I went on, I, I left Beautiful to do the Lion King tour. And that's kind of where I, my spiritual kind of journey um, was uh, born. And for me, I I just really became transfixed with original stories I became super invested in in story in in human stories stories that teach you about life teach you about you know um I don't want to say the deeper meanings but like the deep the the deeper philosophical meaning of life I just I want it to be I wanted to know about it for myself as, as a human. And I think that just manifested as in in the work that I wanted to focus on. Um, and I, yeah, I just, I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to to, to be an actor and,
0: and, and seeing the Lion King, a lot of kids, if they don't live in New York and come to visit New York and maybe get to see one show, I feel like the Lion King is never that show. Like, that show is still so expensive and hard to get into. It doesn't feel yeah. like that's the show the high school takes everyone to. or Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I feel like people would say Les Mis or Phantom or something like that. But were uh-huh. you someone who had gotten to see The Lion King before you joined it? I
1: did, actually. I, was the, I guess I was one of the lucky ones. I didn't yeah. see it in New York, though. I saw it on tour. My Aunt Kim took me to see Lion King. I think I was, I don't know, in the sixth grade. I was very young. I rem- And I remember us like catching the bus downtown um, because she didn't want to like drive and do the traffic down there. And I didn't even know where we were going. She surprised me. I just thought we were like going, I don't know why we were, we, we have a car. I just couldn't figure out why we were like on the bus. And so she took us down there and she surprised me with the tickets and I have a, it is I mean, talk about that experience of, of seeing it young and seeing those costumes and those beautiful dancers and the, the, hearing that music and wanting so much to to be on stage. And then full circle, I find I get to do it. it I, that was just I was the fan in me was was so, so grateful. And it is I mean, liking is as epic as everyone thinks it is. Like, if you've never seen it before, those I'm sorry, those kids haven't seen it yet. But it just, uh, it was surreal. It was really cool to wear those costumes, to be privy to like everything that goes on behind the scenes. Um, I met some really cool people because I don't know if most people don't know this, but uh, contractually there has to be an, um, an X amount of, Africans in in the cast of the Lion King and Rafiki has to be um, African so the spirit of Lion King because you know she's the matriarch she is the 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 spirit of the show she she always has an African root an African spirit so I met a lot of um, South Africans and they welcomed me with love and taught me Zulu and 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 dance taught me dance and taught me and you know gave me recipes and, and just became my friend you know what I mean and I don't have any um, roots to to Africa I don't know where I'm from but they would always joke they would say no you're, you're one of us you're and we, I just had this like pan-African experience that I didn't even know to expect you know I was thinking about the glitz and the glamour of Lion King but it truly is connected to some really
0: authentic roots and I was really grateful to experience that. Talk about like an incredible full circle moment, like mm-hmm. how extraordinary mm-hmm. that you had that. Um, and so you were with Lion King for a while, right? You toured? Uh,
1: not too, not not long, no, I like nine months. Yeah. I got not long enough.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you went to a lot of cities yes. um, and saw what it is to tour with a show. Um, yes. And to make those kinds of connections with people. Um, I think so much about, like, it's interesting to me when you said that you, I love that you go to the pier to read your scripts. Um, is that, which pier is that? Are you in Brooklyn? Or are you in Manhattan? There are piers that, you know, different people go to.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, I live in Inwood, so I'm at the tip of okay. the top, right off okay. the West Side Highway. And so the Hudson, I mean, I'm, I can see the Hudson if I just, like, walk outside my
0: okay. apartment. So I'm right there on the Hudson. Okay. I, I love that you said it was sort of you could, you know, feel these characters in this story and the lyrics of the music on the page right away. Can you share a little bit for, for the people who haven't had the privilege yet to see the show, mm-hmm. um, what the world of, of Girl from the North Country is? Yeah. I'd love to. So it's uh, set in
1: 1934, Duluth, Minnesota, um, the Great Depression. And Bob Dylan was born out of the Great Depression era. era. So I think that's why he um, chose it. And I, I do, be, yeah, he was affected by it. And I know he had this like relationship with Woody Guthrie, um, that also a lot of Woody Guthrie's experience was out of the Great Depression. So I I don't know why I kind of chose it, but I think that may maybe have something to do with it. Cause Bob and Guthrie were, were super close, but anyway, side note, um, we have, we're in this boarding house. My parents own the boarding house may, played by Mayor Winningham and J.O. Sanders. And um, I'm adopted. I, someone left me, my parents left me in the boarding house and Mayor, And Jay's character, they took me in, they took care of me. And I grew up in this home kind of isolated because race is a huge factor and they wanted to protect me. So um, I grew up in a lot of solitude. Working in this boarding house, people of so many different backgrounds come in and out of the home to find to find shelter, yes, but also to find community and safety during such a trying time. And everyone is in pursuit of something. Everyone, it's a slice of life, so everyone kind of has have their has their own like microcosm of uh, of an issue or. Um, Or just really just a a self-indulgent journey of trying to figure out who they are, wanting love, wanting understanding from self and and others around them. Yes, trying to survive the Great Depression, but on top of that, trying to work out this thing that is being human and, and pursuing happiness, which is just, you know, it's super universal, as you know. I find it so interesting because no matter where you are in life and, you know, 1934 great depression or 1918 going through the world, War one, like everyone we're, we're always dealing. And now we're here in 2020 with a pandemic. We're always dealing with worldly things. Um, but it, do, it, do, it never trumps your humanity. It never trumps like basic survival, of course, food, water, sleep, shelter but also the desire to fulfill your soul and that's what north country is about like everyone is on this soul journey
0: it is such a beautiful production and so uniquely staged and designed um i was saying to my husband when we saw it like not only are your voices so glorious together in harmony and when you're singing on your own. But the stage pictures, and Mm -hmm. I don't know if during rehearsal you were able to like sneak out into the audience and kind of see how gorgeous it is. It really is like one painting after another in terms of how powerfully staged it is. It's also, it's like very dark. The lighting is sort of very dark and it's sort of, you must lean into it To Mm -hmm. really kind of, um, how did, how does like on day one, how does this glorious director like get you all to understand this is the world? I mean, I know the like each designer shows you their sketch or whatever. Mm -hmm. But like, but what does he say to you guys on day one about the world you're about to create together? If you can even remember Uh early days.
1: Early days. I don't I don't remember what he said on that first day, Um, but I just Connor, as a director, he never kind of he never imposed anything on us. I think the audition process was super detailed. And so
0: can you share that what that was for you? uh, Yeah. So
1: when I say detailed, I think they were just looking for a very specific soul. I can't, I can't, I wasn't behind the table, so I can't really say, but for me, when I was approaching it, I approached it with a lot of simplicity. I approached it with like, I, I didn't wear any makeup. I wore my natural hair. I I was very indulgent in the text as opposed to trying to make it, you know, sound super shiny. Like I just, I was I was dedicated to the intention of, of the words that Connor have written. And I do think that like, in general, he, that's, he's looking for a, a, a specific energy. Um, and it's, it's a feeling probably, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not very sure, but with that being said, he, I think he also just knows that, the show is so welcome well taken care of between him, Bob's genius and Simon Hale, who arranged the music, Lucy, who did the choreography, you know, Ray, who did everyone, it's so well taken care of that I don't think he, he he it wasn't really about him hammering any specific theme or vibe into us. It was about him letting us explore explore these characters and bring the honest, honest truth. And I think collectively that makes Girl from the North Country.
0: Yeah. Was there a lot of um, early, were you all sitting around a table reading the script together for a while? Were there conversations about race and, and history and where you guys are in space and time at the beginning?
1: Totally, yeah. We did a lot of table work. We did, a, yeah, a lot of conversations about that.
0: Um, yeah. And how does one, or Connor specifically, create a safe space for his company? It was. I mean, it was always. He's just
1: so. He's so open, and he's so. One thing about, I think, to answer your question specifically, so he wrote the show as well as directing it. And usually when you have a writer, they're they're so, of course, they, they want their words to be said the way they wrote them. And, you know, he was never attached to that. He, you know, we would... If I kept saying something the wrong way, he was just like, "Forget the words. For, forget, say it the way you want to say it, but get, but get this intention out." Um, he was always checking in and asking, "How how would Marianne say this, or do this, or feel this?" He is constantly checking in with the actor. I've never ever felt like I couldn't go to him and kind of rap with him about uh, Marianne and if there was an issue. I would just be like, "I don't think." you know, this is the way it should be. And he was always open to, to, to that, to, to letting me uh, create her, even though they, you know, she, he wrote it on other actors at the, you know, West End. Um, I think he was also interested in seeing how Americans brought this American story to life. I think that was a big thing. So, especially when it came to language and intention, he, he, he never presumed that he knew best. Um, and he, he, he was just always there to guide us and to be a soundboard. I do think one of his special elusive gifts is that he doesn't give you anything like in the beginning or answers. I mean, I had so many questions and everyone, after you see the show, you're like, I have all of these questions, can you answer them? And he never, he didn't answer. It took a while for him to answer questions. I'm still getting, you know, things answered for myself. But I think that is, I I love the journey. I loved being able to play different things and not having to play this like concrete idea because, you know, he said so, you know he let me kind of figure it out and, and that's how I got my answers.
0: You know, when you describe sort of the world of the play, this boarding house, which is run by your family, which is front and center in terms of where everything takes place, everyone kind of, it's all these travelers, it's all these strangers with these stories. They're all escaping a past um, that haunts them. They're all trying to find new lives and they are all so poor and, and right. I mean, everyone in this, in this journey has lost everything. Mm -hmm. And it's such an amazing thing to see that in this very darkly lit, very dark time in history, very dark story of loss and death and unrequited love and illness, right? Like every link, every, you can check every box of like life's worst tragedies, right? And and yet Um, there's light. And there's light and, and, and. Partying together, yeah, um, and <laughs> tremendous, yeah. and and alcohol and things that you know people use as a salve on on the on the sore that is their mm-hmm. life, um, and so much love and it really is incredible because it could be that these are all prototypes, like types of people, and it is really amazing to see how in, I don't know if imbued is the right vocabulary word but they all end up feeling so whole like and no one is just good and no one is just bad like the lines are so blurred and it's such a successful piece of theater in that Mm -hmm. way because Mm -hmm. it really is so representative of all humanity I did Mm -hmm. want to ask you something about your character in particular and you can tell me like if this might be the kind of thing Connor would be like I don't know you know but like (laughs) There's so much uh, attention about a pregnancy and then there's some possibility alluded to that it's sort of, um, an hysterical pregnancy versus an actual pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Um, is that, did I miss something in the storytelling? Is it solved for us or is that just sort of left for us to ponder? Um, No. I I have the baby. It, the, I know you have monologue. a baby. Yes, that I know, but it's uh-huh. unclear because of the timeline. It was unclear if the doctor in the play alludes to the fact that it like that you're not really pregnant, and so yeah. then I was like, oh wait, does so she then get pregnant because this is her love? Like this is mm-hmm. the person. I don't know. I was a little yeah. confused, and I've seen it twice.
1: Yeah, no, <laughs> that's he, he definitely. He believes that I have, um, pseudosiasis, which is like a condition, um, when you can kind of think up a disease and actually, and that disease will manifest physically. Um, that is not the case. I like to believe that it, I don't know if you picked up on the nativity story of it all. Um, Mary Ann, Mary, Joseph is the guy, um, the two men are both named Joseph, um, there's no room at the end, you know. The in the beginning scene where they, they don't have any room, and they they come to the boarding house. Right. And uh, Matthew McGrath's character talks about three men by the name of uh, a couple by the name of Shepherd. The three Burks are traveling. So there's a lot that and, and my monologue that kind of explains. You know, a, a man came into my room. More than a man, a spirit. The ancient waters. There's a lot that. Um, and the, the show in general has a, um, a huge spiritual, uh, religious, religious presence. So I believe that um, Marianne's child is kind of on theme with, with the nativity story. Um,
0: yeah, and she, okay. she does give birth. Yes, which, which we feel really joyous about the way it's presented. At mm-hmm. the end of the play, we feel yeah. there's like the hope, yeah, like like she's loved, that's the mm-hmm. feeling of it, mm-hmm. um, and settled and and got out and survived. I mean, this play is about survival, if nothing else, yes. um mm-hmm. did you guys get any messages or notes from Bob Dylan? Uh, mm-hmm. I know that you know he's not he wasn't there every day in rehearsal, um you know, the way Lippa might've been around the Adams family. It's not quite the same thing. Um, what, what is having that legacy on your shoulders and, and knowing what Dylan means to so many people, Mm -hmm. um, and what was his involvement or feedback if there's any.
1: Yeah. He's always been really involved, um, in, in his way, you know, in his Bob Dylan way. Um, they had commissioned or uh, asked Connor to write. They were looking for someone to write Bob a musical and they got in touch with Connor and Connor, you know, kind of like wrote a template or the beginning of it. Bob Dylan read it. And after he read, you know, the first few pages of a Con- Connor's idea, he sent Connor his entire uh, it, all of his music, his, his entire rep, and just said Connor can do whatever he wants with with it. And so, you, know, they, I think Connor says they literally showed up with like boxes and boxes of his albums, and he was just like, "There you go, have at it." And um, so, he's always just—I don't know. I—it's funny because they, I believe, they've only met each other a couple of times. I mean, like twice. But they talk so highly of each other. Um, you know, Connor's always talking about what a prophet and, and and you know philosophical genius Bob Dylan is. Bob has said that working with Connor this way is one of the highlights of his career. And they're 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 just so similar in their in in their way of. Art. Um, it's like they kind of together created this masterpiece on a subconscious level that nobody else is privy to. It's magical how they came together so seamlessly. Um, Bob did see the show at the public when we did it. Um, he didn't tell us he was coming. He sat in the back and um, afterwards his manager came back and was just like, honestly, Bob is so undone by this piece that he just like he can't. He's, he was like crying, I guess, and just like so joyful and lifted by it that he, he you know, he just kind of wanted to leave it at that. But then two people had already gotten tickets to his concert in New York and he got wind that they were there. So he invited um, Jeanette Adele and Mary Winningham to go backstage. And when I tell you, I tell you, that's what they said. And he was just he was like a kid. He was just so flabbergasted uh, that his, he, he kept saying like, those are my songs. Like you guys made uh, these songs. They're, they're just so different. They're just, it's amazing how you took the songs to another level. And he also had like, a million and one questions and he they said he was just so proud and wide-eyed and and very bright and and, and throughout the process they they're always sending us you know things from him we, we all got our like heaven heaven's door whiskey and stuff um but most recently opening night he wrote a beautiful letter to us and to the audience and and to connor Thanking us and, and and praising the musical. Um, yeah, and that mayor read it. It was very special. Um, but I think there he also had a sorry, I'm like just trying to jar and get my memories going, but I do think he, he he's been quoted many times in interviews talking about our play. He he loves the play, but you know, Bob is not. You know he's not share like no he's not coming <laughs> and partying on stage with us every night but he very much so loves loves the musical and is proud of what Connor did. I feel like
0: if I worked in advertising that would be the pull quote. Bob Dylan he is not um, share. <laughs> that's hysterical and exactly right. It's so in keeping with his persona and his very private person. Dumb. Talk a little bit if you don't mind about coming back during the pandemic. You guys, how long had you been playing before you had to shut down? Uh, we only played for well, we did a month of previews. We okay. opened and then we we were open for a week. And so then everything shuts down. And at first we don't, you know, this intermission is meant to be two weeks and it turns into almost two years, right? So yeah. <laughs> um, it's just, unfathomable what has happened in this time. Um, are you getting any information about, like, are people in touch with you saying, we're coming back, don't worry, just hang in there? What What are you told?
1: Yeah, we remained extremely close. The cast and the team producers, they were constantly checking in with us. Um, it, I mean, it truly... Was such a weight off my shoulders to know that, you know, whenever the world does start to move back to not what it was, but, but move back to being functional, um, that we have a job. And then they always made that clear. Everyone believes in our show, including our producers. And so they have done and continue to do everything they can to make sure that we're taken care of mentally, spiritually, sometimes financially. And um, they, they've always supported us. So we would have like check-ins on Zoom, Um, We had, we listened to our album together as a cast on Zoom. We hung out um, at at each other's homes. Uh, Mayor has a beautiful barn house home up in Connecticut, and we visited there often. So we, it's not lost on us that, you know, we, everyone needed community at that time. And your community, your theatrical community is one of the most important things because our art is so special to us so everyone went out of their way to um to connect and make sure that we were all taken care of so yeah so, we had a
0: good can you remember when you walked back into your dressing room again for the first time
1: <laughs> I do actually uh, so my dressing roommate is uh Caitlin Houlihan and um she she and I decked out our dressing room before the pandemic. Like, and I, were, it's so funny. Cause we were, we were at home goods or something or TJ Maxx and we just had so much stuff. And I was like, is this stupid? Like, are we spending too much money on this? And she's like, no, we're going to be here forever. It's going to be great. It's going to be worth it. And so we have a beautiful dressing room and we just left it because yeah, it was just, I mean, we, when we found out that we weren't coming back, I was, we were all home. No one was at the theater. And then you go back to get like a few necessities, but I, we left the dressing room as it was. And so when I walked into the dressing room, I was shocked and with just so much joy. Cause I love bright colors i the the dressing room is pink and and turquoise blue purple like it's just such a light dressing room and i just it put the biggest smile on my face and i remember just like laughing out loud like look at this ridiculous room (laughs) that we put so much effort into that we never got to use and now we're using it we love it we have the best dressing room
0: in the Blasco. You heard it here, people. (laughs) Little known fact. And were you continuously, like, working on the script to hold on to blocking and choreography and words and lyrics during the pandemic? Or did you let it go and start again in rehearsal? Yeah, I let it go.
1: It was kind of like that that child that you just gotta let go and let it do its thing i had to let the world do its thing and then when it's ready you know you let it come back to you and it came back quickly i know i mean connor we had a meeting before like a month before rehearsals and connor was just like i would love it if you guys if we didn't have to be like grasping for lines every second so close to the beginning of rehearsal i did get uh, I would read for, for lines and everything, but it all came back so so naturally, um, so seamlessly a, a lot of the times. Other times, not so much, but our stage managers were there with the Bible and knew exactly what was what. But also, it wasn't really Connor's goal to recreate what we did in the past. We have a lot mm-hmm. of new elements to the show, new staging, blocking, new intentions and stuff that um, were we we're, re- were born out of this time, you know, which is which is really special. Um and we also it... got a new castmate. Uh, I was Cain. about to
0: ask you oh, if yeah. anyone was new. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who did yeah, he
1: play? So he plays my brother. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Gene, he, so, but he also did it um, at the West end and um, in Toronto. So he, he also had an idea of his show and everything but he was really great like because at first we were all like well this is what we did last year and and then I realized like we're not giving him any grace to create you know his thing so then I just can't we we I completely made a new show with Colin and I think everyone did I mean you have to you know so that was really special and we got a bunch of new swings um you know so to make sure that we're covered for COVID and everything and other sicknesses, but yeah, we, we just created with the foundation that we have, which is, has always been such a strong foundation. We just continue to, to grow and, and create new moments, keep the things that work and enhance them and, and, and find new things.
0: Well, that's wild. I, you would never know that that is a new relationship because you guys have so much special sibling stuff baked into your performance. That mm-hmm. is, um, very very effective and real and organic Um, yeah (laughs) I mean it really that's great and bravo to him for seamlessly weaving himself into that tapestry Um, okay I know that you have you said a music rehearsal you're still rehearsing Yes. Um so we're rehearsing all,
1: because we're um I just want to tell you I, yes. I hope I'm allowed to tell you. I think yes. I am uh we're um where our show is being recorded for the Lincoln Center Archives, which is such a deal. That's so exciting. uh we having rehearsal for that. Oh,
0: and for people who don't have the the ability to get to New York, the idea that it will be preserved like that for all time, the legacy of the show, that's incredible. Yeah. Um, you are so extraordinary in this piece you are you. devastating and uplifting and i i just don't even know how you figured out this balance um of of all these levels of joy and pain it's like it is a master class and your voice is so beautiful and, and it's you. just a really um powerful powerful performance and I thank you for it it was such a gift to get to see you (laughs) twice um before I let you go is there a little known fact you've been so generous in sharing so much already but is there a little (laughs) known fact about you that you can share uh
1: a little known fact about me that I can share oh well I guess can I talk can I um say that during the pandemic, uh, the producers let me direct music videos for our show. And so it kind of, uh, it, that it evoked my, uh, ignited my passion for directing. I also got to direct, uh, something for the public, which also is on online. Can we, can possibly-
0: we talk about that? please, just before you go, can you assemble this incredible, incredible cast of Black artists doing Shakespeare, the soliloquy from Hamlet, To Be or Not to Be? And it's an extraordinary piece of art. So can you just tell people, like, whatever you want to share, I know you have to go, or how they can see it. Um, Yeah. If you can see it, um,
1: you can just go to YouTube uh, or even on, I think it might still be on the public's page, the public theater, um, to be black. And um, basically, well, you already pretty much said, but it was just during the pandemic, uh, my friend Ellis and I wanted to contribute um, to the activism um, and, and be activists with our art. And, strangely not strangely but hamlet that that piece that particular monologue is just uh, i find now that you can fill it with anything if you're a black person in america if you're a, a, a woman if you're a teenager trying to you know figure your life out it, to be or not to be i kind of like to replace it with to have purpose or to not have purpose you know and so i just wanted to I wanted to gather um, a group of Black people and, and and say those words, and and that's exactly what we did, and it just ended up being bigger than what I ever thought it was going to be i just i took it to mandy hackett over at the public and she just kind of fell in love with it and we got so much support from people like don Cheadle and and audrey mcdonald and brian stokes mitchell everyone was just super on on fire about that text um in relation to the black experience here in america and it it took off and i got that was like my first kind of bit of directing and i loved it and and um I'm very, very proud of it. And you, yeah, you guys should definitely check it out.
0: It's gorgeous. Uh, you, you, you edited it together in terms of what was going on, you know, currently with this piece and historically, and it's gorgeous. And congratulations on that. You're a stunning director as well. Um, thank, you. thank you for your time <laughs> today, Kimber. Have a gorgeous show tonight. And until thank next you. time.
1: Nice to meet you. Thank you nice for having me. Nice to meet
0: you. <laughs> One more thing. So many of you have asked, "How do you donate to the podcast?" Well, it could not be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast slash donations. Instructions are clearly laid out, and I'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make. But regardless, I have loved, loved, loved making the previous two hundred and something episodes for you. I can't wait to make two hundred more. I wish you a beautiful day. Stay healthy. Be safe. Until next time. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So, there you go. These are Little Known Facts that now, you know. The episode was edited by Nicholas Klar. We recorded in New York City. And the Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded by Georgia Famosa with backups by Caleb Famusa.